Say, Law360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Alex Lawson. Hello, Amber. Hello, Haley. And also Haley Knopf. Hey, Amber. Hey, Alex. We're coming to you uh, from a Thursday recording, as we usually do. The Queen of England has just died. And I was, this has been the top news item of the day. I was struggling to think of a a legal news hook that we could plant our flag on or whatever. I don't really have a lot except to say that in the United States, monarchies still illegal. Oh. Oh, well, you know, technically, I guess that's a legal peg. Sure. And in fact, was a legal founding principle of the country. I don't mean to spike the football on the day that the queen died, (laughs) uh, but it's merely just a statement of fact. Um, This is also the day the NFL season kicks off, so I'm not spiking the football. But yes. Hell yeah. I mean, it it is sad when anybody who's been famous their whole life and and has the storied history passes away. But we are American. So I, I hear your point, Alex. I'm really embarrassed to say, obviously, I knew a monarchy would not be welcomed here in this fair country, but I didn't know it was illegal. I mean, it's a founding principle, as yeah. Alex put it, which isn't like, it's not like there's a law in the books that exactly. says like no monarchies allowed, but it's kind of the sign on the door. It is. Yeah, that's more what I'm saying. Like, it is sort of in the negative space of our of our founding documents, right? The, the, the idea that, you know, a rule by the people for the people, et cetera. Exactly. Um, anyway, uh, this has been Civics. <laughs> and this has been probably one of the top 10 Queen Elizabeth eulogies uh, okay. in the early stages so, of, her, of her demise. My key question for you, Alex, how much time did you spend reading articles about the Queen and otherwise doing things perhaps during work hours that were only related to this anecdote <laughs> at the top of the show? Because we are talking about worker productivity tracking as our main segment today. And did you need to be tracked to keep you on track? Don't answer the question, <laughs> Alex. <laughs> well, that's okay because since we're since I'm talking about it on the podcast, this becomes work activity, and I'm and I'm happy to justify whatever. But yes, Amber, we don't want to bury the lead here. You and I had a great conversation with Amanda Ottaway from Employment Authority, who wrote about you know, productivity tracking tools, which have become very popular. They, they were popular before, but, but even more popular post-pandemic. And some of the, you know, sort of potential drawbacks that those pose, which was uh, quite an illuminating conversation as always. Yeah, it definitely was nice to talk to her because on the face of it, it sounds really straightforward. They're just going to track what you're doing during your work hours. But there are a lot of interesting potential legal wrinkles with using those kinds of programs. We do have news to get to before that, though, and I wanted to start with a quick update on the Twitter lawsuit against Elon Musk over Musk's decision to abandon his $44 billion bid to acquire Twitter. For a full rundown of like what is at stake in this lawsuit, I would definitely refer everyone to go back and check out episode 257. We talked to Leslie Pappas who covers the Delaware Chancery Court where this lawsuit is playing out. And we kind of got into the whole story and the whole pretext for this lawsuit. But that was a couple of months ago. And in the intervening time, there's been a lot going on um, here in this sort of pre-trial phase. There's been a lot of gamesmanship over when the trial is going to happen, 
Musk has attempted to kind of go on the offensive and assert some very explosive counterclaims. And there's also been a lot of like colorful sparring over subpoenas and trying to get certain information from the other side, as often happens in the lead up to trial. So it seems like a good time to kind of catch everyone up on what you need to know about what's going on with Elon Musk and Twitter. I'm so glad we're back around to this because all of Musk's legal entanglements are usually interesting. There's usually some, like you said, some colorful things that come out of any time he's embroiled in something going on like this. So let's get to some specifics here. When is this trial actually supposed to happen? So it's important to know that, and I think we mentioned this maybe in the in a follow-up episode after that initial show we did about the suit, but the case has been fast-tracked in Delaware Chancery Court. Twitter filed its suit on July 12th, and we currently have a trial date set for October 17th. Now, that's like a three-month turnaround for a very complex white-collar corporate trial. And the Musk team, the, the legal team, has been desperately trying to push it back at least a month, perhaps more if they had gotten that in the first place. But like, just get it pushed back to like mid-November. And thus far, that has not been successful. Their most recent motion to push back the trial was turned away on Wednesday by Chancellor. Again, I must remind you, in the Delaware Chancery Court, they are chancellors, technically, not judges. So I do uh, love ch- that. Chancellor. You, you get it wrong once and you never get it wrong again. That's exactly right. That is spoken like someone who's covered some late-breaking <laughs> chancery court news from L.A. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you, Bailey. <laughs> Chancellor Kathleen McCormick wrote Wednesday she was responding to the Musk uh, legal team's attempt to delay the suit. She said, quote, I previously rejected defendants' arguments in response to Twitter's motion to expedite, making clear that the longer the delay until trial, the greater the risk of irreparable harm to Twitter. I am convinced that even four weeks' delay would risk further harm to Twitter too great to justify. So she's basically talking about the harm that is posed to Twitter while they're in this kind of liminal period. And she voiced some measure of sympathy, I would say, to Twitter's position. She said that the company has been operating. I mean, imagine if you're this sort of like multi-billion dollar company and you're operating under this disputed merger agreement and you don't exactly know who's going to be running the company pending certain legal outcomes. And so that kind of uncertainty has to be mitigated with a very speedy trial in the eyes of this judge. Yeah. And you mentioned this is very complex. It seems like it's getting more and more complex with each passing day. But what has Musk's team been doing to counter Twitter's arguments? Yeah. So in addition to just mounting its own affirmative defenses, I should say, on the same day that Chancellor McCormick declined to delay the trial, she also allowed a set of counterclaims from Elon Musk to go forward, be added to the suit. And the issue there is that those counterclaims relate to three whistleblower complaints filed to the federal government by Twitter's former chief security officer. That's a man named Peter Zatko. And in those whistleblower complaints, he alleges that Twitter was overinflating its value 
with like bogus data and kind of funky numbers that understated the amount of automated users on the site. This is the bot argument that you've seen a lot in the press where Musk is saying that there are so many bots, you know, fake accounts on Twitter, which don't actually account for human engagement, which overstates the value of the site. Um, this is very important to advertisers on Twitter because Twitter is a free website, basically, as you often hear. And that goes right to the heart of Musk's defense. He says he has always said that he walked away from his proposal to acquire Twitter because the company was not being transparent about the bots on its site, which would weaken its value. So now with those, with these whistleblowers claims added to the suit, Musk uh, and his legal team are going to spend the next several weeks conducting their own discovery. They've been permitted to uh, conduct limited discovery about Twitter's user and revenue metrics. And this is a little bit related to the company's uh, motion to delay the trial because they said that they would need more time to do this. But the chancellor nevertheless said that they're going to have to do this discovery within the schedule that's already on the books. And you mentioned right in the beginning, setting this up, that there were some updates related to subpoena fights. What's going on with that? Yeah. So, I mean, Musk is a colorful guy and he runs in these like high finance circles and there are some colorful characters here. And that has shown out in Twitter's efforts to subpoena a man named David Sachs, who if you follow like business and finance, you know David Sachs. He's a former executive at PayPal. And that's how him and Musk became acquainted. Musk was an early investor in PayPal. Sachs now runs a venture capital fund called Kraft Ventures. And Twitter has been trying to subpoena Sachs to um, see to what extent he reached out to Musk to invest, to sort of fund his $44 billion offer for Twitter. So there's a little bit of like, how seriously was Musk taking this offer? We want to know if he was talking to other investors to fund it, things like that. So, so they're trying to subpoena David Sachs. And those requests have become very, very testy. Um, when Sachs received the Delaware subpoenas, he tweeted out the image of a middle finger on Twitter. And then he also posted a video clip from The Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, Jimmy and I talked about that several shows ago, where Jonah Hill urinates on a government subpoena uh, cool. after he received the subpoena request. So he's being very like... Cool, cool. He's being very demonstrative in his like disrespect of the court subpoenas in this Delaware case. I know that if I'm ever subpoenaed, I'm going to be very cool, calm, collected, tweet out some gifts from a movie. You know, whatever. <laughs> I mean, I do respect the movie reference. I think that's canon <laughs> on the show. I mean, it's not true. wading into sort of like the merits here. But the reason that Sachs is upset about this is because he's also been subjected to Twitter subpoenas in a separate legal matter in California that are similar in nature. And he found them to be like, if one company is subpoenaing me for two similar things, but I have to comply in two different districts, that's like overly burdensome and it's like an abuse of the legal process and things like that. So he made a move to block the Delaware request and said, I'm already subject to this in another district. But 
Chancellor McCormick denied that request, the request to block the Delaware subpoena, after Twitter Twitter basically said it would just treat, it would say, if, if Sachs and Kraft Venture honors one subpoena, we'll consider it honoring another subpoena. You don't have to do double the work. Um, and here was a quote from Chancellor McCormick. Twitter had valid concerns based on Sachs' behavior that neither he nor Kraft would comply with the California subpoenas. Rather than burden a judge in another state with a request to enforce a subpoena or risk not getting relief in time for use in this highly expedited matter, Twitter served the Delaware subpoenas as an insurance policy. So you can see how the judge is... First of all, she flags Sachs' behavior. These are referencing his tweets, obviously. And she's kind of just saying that Twitter's covering its bases, like if they didn't think that he was going to honor one subpoena, better to serve him another subpoena. I do like the meta-ness of the judge having to talk about tweets in a case that is, in fact, about Twitter. So that's fun. Yes. I mean, we are fully through the looking glass, people. (laughs) Yeah. Up is down, black is white, etc. Um, so kind of just to put a bow on all this, we still have a trial set for October 17th. And Musk now has a little bit of leash from the court to get information about Twitter's user metrics, which are crucial to his defense. And David Sachs is now going to have to answer the Twitter subpoena about his efforts to fund the Elon Musk Twitter purchase uh, attempt. We at Law360 and at large, the whole sort of Delaware team has been all over this. We at Pro Se will, of course, keep you updated. So stay tuned. It's, uh, It's getting wild out there. For our next story, I want to get into pandemic insurance coverage a bit here. As we're all aware here at Law360, because we have so much coverage on this, policyholders have not had a ton of success in this area. But Baylor College of Medicine just scored a rare win in its fight against its insurers. A Texas federal jury recently reached a $48 million verdict in the med school's favor. And this was a big loss for several Lloyds of London syndicates. Like I said, it's pretty uncommon in general for policyholders to come out on top in these. But this is particularly unique because it is the first time a jury has sided with a policyholder. I mean, it's only been, uh, how long has it been, guys? Two and a half years Two worth and a half of years. pandemic Ugh. stuff. And we've basically never heard of a jury being like, you know what? You can recoup your losses for COVID. So that's it must be exciting for the people that have brought these kinds of suits to see <laughs> one finally succeed. But tell us more about what happened here, Haley. So it's a little bit complicated. The Lloyds syndicates actually only represent about 25% of Baylor's property coverage. So the the suit was initially filed against multiple insurers. However, two of those insurers have already they they had virus exclusions in their policies, so they won summary judgment in December and the claims against them did not proceed to trial. So the trial itself was only against Lloyd's. And that kind of brings us up to speed here for the verdict. So the jury agreed with Baylor that COVID-19, if present, does cause damage to property and in the school's case, led to its lost profits. Specifically, the jury found that the school suffered about $42.8 million in lost profits, 
3.3 million in extra expenses for things like personal protective equipment and plexiglass barriers, and then another 2.3 million in damage to its research projects. But I do want to emphasize again, Lloyd's is not on the hook for all of that. It's only on the hook for 25% of that award. Now, do we have a sense of this has been in our lives for over two years now in terms of like people suing their insurers? Generation type of event. They've mostly been unsuccessful. Do we have a sense of why Baylor succeeded here when so many other policyholders did not? We do. One big factor here is that we're dealing with a clinical hospital, you know, a healthcare provider, and it had to stay open during the pandemic. Mm. One of the school's attorneys, Murray Fogler, told Law 360 that the school continually had infected people on its property during the policy period. And that meant Baylor was able to prove that even with everything it did to try and combat COVID-19, it was always there. And that was what directly caused the loss of income and those extra expenses. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm also struck by this being a jury uh, award here. It's the first time a jury sided with a policyholder in this way. But what's the universe of that? Did a lot of these even get to juries in the first place? No, most of them have not. Uh, most of them have actually been dismissed. Um, but when they have made it to trial, the policyholders have struggled. The first case went before a jury last fall. That was a case involving a Kansas City restaurant and bar operator, but the jury sided with the insurer. And then there's another big one that uh, you may remember. It's this New Orleans restaurant owner, Cajun Conti. They were the first policyholder in the country to sue, and that made it to a bench trial in December 2020. The judge in that case ruled against Cajun Conti, but the decision was later reversed by an appellate court in June. That was actually the first time an appellate court sided with a policyholder. Overall, about 1,400 of these cases have been filed in the U.S., and almost 800 of them have already been dismissed. And that is, according to the Law360 Insurance Authority's COVID-19 case tracker, which is fantastic. Got to put a little plug in. I use it all the time. <laughs> Company woman, Haley Knoth. Really look, appreciate that. I, it is a cool tracker because you can like... I use it a lot. You can like look at a map of the US and like see things by jurisdiction. I mean, it is pretty cool. So good plug for our, our coworkers there. But given those numbers and how this does seem like an outlier, the success yeah. of a policyholder, does this mean much? as we move forward with the rest of the cases that are out there, because it still seems like such a small little sliver where they're winning. I think it's sure to give policyholders a, at least a little bit of hope in their quests for coverage. Fogler told Law360 that he thinks the decision will provoke a great deal of activity on both sides of the docket. He said it'll provide hope to the policyholders, but it will also provoke greater consternation on behalf of the insurers. Um, another attorney on the policyholder side of things, Gretchen Hoff-Varner, had an interesting take as well. She said the verdict marks a pretty important understanding that there is coverage to be had out there, at least under some circumstances. Here's a quote from her. Even if the insurers are right in general about the virus exclusion, there still is coverage for particular kinds of claimants under particular kinds of policies. And it's not an all or nothing, black or white blanket approach. We really need a more tailored approach. 
Yeah, like most litigation involving insurance policies, the circumstances are very important there. uh, And you can see that being borne out in the verdict here. The COVID-19 pandemic and the move to remote work led many employers to begin using software to monitor workers' productivity. But are these trackers really all they're cracked up to be? Today, we're joined by Amanda Ottaway, one of the senior reporters on our Employment Authority team, so that we can take a look at productivity trackers. Welcome back to the show, Amanda. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's nice to have you back to talk about this. I think it's really top of mind for a lot of workers these days. It seems like worker monitoring has really ramped up, even though it's not a new idea. It's just, I think the circumstances have changed over the last couple of years. Can you tell us more about that? Are we in fact seeing more of this out there and and what kind of programs are companies using? I think we are. Um, Last year, last summer, about a year ago, uh, the Washington Center for Equitable Growth published some research that called workplace monitoring, quote, the new normal. The New York Times just published um, a story a couple of weeks ago that that got a lot of traction. Um, They said that eight of the top 10 private employers in the U.S. are using some kind of productivity monitoring. So, you know, lawyers I talked to said they're not seeing too much of it yet, but they hadn't already been seeing. There are certain industries that have been doing this for a long time, but they they do expect it to kind of increase. Um, And especially that, you know, the COVID pandemic forced a lot of people to work from home when they hadn't worked from home before, as we, as we all know. And, uh, you know, that, that brought with it kind of a rise in employers being like, wait, you know, how do I, I can't just, you know, crane my neck over and see what people are up to. Right. So, so yeah. what kind of trackers are we talking about? I mean, I think I've seen it kind of almost encompassing a, just a, a wide array of things, everything from like how many boxes you stack in a warehouse to how many keystrokes you're entering on your computer. Yeah, that's about right. You know, there's delivery drivers, of course, the trucks have GPS. um, So that's, that's one way. Um, But yeah, there are white collar professions that they can, you know, tell what you're typing, they can tell how often you're moving your mouse, they can, there's, I heard about one where they like snap a a picture of you of your face and where you are, and they can screenshot your computer screen, pretty much everything that you could think of. (laughs) (laughs) And you can, I mean, it, you know, from the employer side, I suppose you can see the appeal of doing that as remote work kind of normalizes even as we like sort of emerge from the pandemic. But you wrote about a lot of ways that this is, you know, could have a lot of drawbacks. I think it's pretty evident, but I do want to get into some of those concerns. And one specific issue that you drilled down on was the potential for discrimination. So I wanted to talk about that specifically. Because I know like not everybody works in equitable conditions when you work remotely and there's like all kinds of concerns to take in there. What do those concerns about discrimination look like? Yeah, there's a lot of different discrimination concerns with uh, productivity tracking, largely disability discrimination issues. Um, att- attorneys were saying to me, you know, the the Americans with Disabilities Act focuses on whether a person can perform the quote unquote essential functions of their job. So if you're not tracking what those essential functions actually are, then you're not getting a good picture of whether the person 
is doing their job. And there are all kinds of reasons that, that, that people need to not, you know, not be typing for eight hours straight. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I mean, we're all humans. Nobody's going to type for eight hours straight, but uh, you know, if you have migraines and you got to step away from your screen to rest, or, you know, if you have to back problems and you have to stretch, um, it's as simple as that, you know, um, there, there needs to be a way to tell the software, like, Hey, I gotta, I gotta step away for a second. You also, and you also could get a, the, the ADA also protects against, uh, perceived as disabled. So if, if an employer sees that someone isn't moving boxes as quickly, for example, and later takes some kind of adverse action against that employee, whether or not it's related, that employee could say, Hey, you thought I was disabled because I was moving boxes more slowly and therefore you're punishing me. Now on the flip side of that, another attorney pointed out like, Hey, that could also be helpful. Like if someone's moving boxes more slowly, they might be injured. And and if you can talk to them about that and ask if they're okay, that can be a, a really good thing. Yeah, but that seems like it could be helpful only if the employer takes that next step. It's like a it's right. Like it raises a flag, but then the employer has to <laughs> process that the correct way. Yeah, totally, totally. There is the ADA does require. Yeah, what you said, Amber. The the in- interactive process it requires a conversation between uh, an employer and an employee who might need accommodations because of their their disability. So this this could help start that conversation. The disability thing, I think. Um, everybody can easily grasp why some of these things that just track like keystrokes, let's say, could be problematic. Is it also problematic for other employees beyond just those that might have a disability? Sure. Yeah. There's, there's all kinds of, of, of ways that it, that it could be problematic. Facial recognition technology, it's kind of widely recognized that, that it, it's not great at, at recognizing all different kinds of faces or all different kinds of expressions. So that could result in, uh, you know, race or gender bias. Um, if you are, if you are a breastfeeding parent, uh, who needs to take time away to pump and there's no way to kind of tell, tell your tracker that, that, that you need that time, that time is protected by the law. But, you know, if, if you can't tell the tracker that you're stepping away, same if, uh, you need to step away to pray a couple of times during the workday, um, there's all kinds of different ways that this could kind of go awry. You also wrote about morale. I mean, the idea that just like if you disclose, I mean, you should disclose uh, to your workers that this kind of tracking is going on, that it could sort of can cast a pall on on a workforce in in, in certain contexts. Yes. Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it could really make people I had one lawyer say it would make employees feel like they're in a prison and they're just kind of being watched. Everything that every move they make is is being watched. Um, and that could have a really serious impact on on morale. What did attorneys say to you about the efficacy of what these are actually tracking? Because it does seem like there's a tension between ultimate work product versus just logging keystrokes or moving a box or what have you. It's not necessarily measuring the things that make businesses ultimately successful. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, attorneys on both sides of the bar said, look, there are industries where this can be helpful. Like if you're on a forklift and you're picking boxes in a warehouse that that it could be useful to know how many, how many boxes are getting picked up. But, uh, or if you're, you're doing data entry, you know, that, that kind of thing does lend itself to, to this maybe. 
Um, but but obviously there are it kind of declines in usefulness for for other other occupations. Um, and I don't know that we've you know quite figured out how to do it yet. Uh, I, some, someone said, I, I don't remember who told me this, but one of the attorneys I talked to was like, it, it kind of escaped the lab, basically. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it does seem like the more creative input has to go into your job, the less you can track that the same for every person, because the end result you're looking for as an employer might be one thing, but the way the workers get to it could be different depending on their outlook and circumstance. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I can imagine that this is a tumultuous time for workers and bosses, um, given the way that the pandemic has changed the game and that, like, you know, some, obviously, we were all forced to go remote for a time. And now, in a, in a lot of ways, that kind of normalizes and it can metastasize and just kind of stay the norm for certain industries. I can imagine there's been some pushback to this, like, automated productivity tracking. What has that pushback looked like? Um, so my awesome colleague on Employment Authority, Tim Ryan, did uh, another great story about specifically how unions are responding to this, this rise in productivity tracking. And, you know, this is something that's going to be coming up in bargaining. Unions seem to be, you know, he, he wrote about how uh, it could tracking if it's if it's implemented correctly and if it's kind of the right kind of tool it could potentially help prevent bias in terms of how employees are evaluated by you know just numbers are numbers right but also on the flip side of that is that if the if the tool isn't perfect then it could actually exacerbate bias yeah and anytime that there's something that could lead to a worker being disciplined or even fired a union wants to have some say in how those that process plays out. A hundred percent. Yeah. That's, that's what folks told Tim is that, um, they, they're definitely going to want to be get going through bargaining on, on issues anytime a tracker might lead to discipline. Yeah. I think this is so interesting in terms of that pushback, because I know, um, there've been big drives at several different Amazon warehouses, um, to unionize. And some of that has been driven by complaints of, the expectation of extremely high productivity in those warehouses. So the idea that this plays into how they automate that tracking and how that's deployed is, is really fascinating. Yeah, definitely. And that, you know, I think circles back around to morale issues too. Uh, you know, if employees feel like they're not trusted, that that's a, that's a morale issue. Yeah, definitely. There's so much for employers to consider beyond just, hey, look at this cool way I'll have numbers about what people <laughs> are doing. Um, seems so simple, but the minute you dig in a little, sort of an unspooling set of secondary issues emerge. And I really appreciate you coming to talk about it with us. Yeah, absolutely. It was my pleasure. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, all. our show is something offbeat and I'm taking us back to IP yet again finding so much good IP news in the recent weeks so and sports well this one does cross that barrier too am I becoming a sports fan um hard to let say. it happen Here's what we're talking about today. let it happen <laughs> so earlier this month the sprinter who's also a gold medalist Usain Bolt filed an application to register a trademark for what's being called his lightning bolt pose which 
I didn't know it was referred to in that manner, but I know the pose. And I just <laughs> wanted to talk a little bit about celebrities who look to register marks for things like gestures and stances and various poses. It's very cool because when you're so famous, anything you do with your body becomes distinctive. You know, I mean, if it's if it's distinctive enough and it's like central to like the thing you do in the world, this then becomes intellectual property in certain contexts. So well, we're going to get into how that works. Um, yeah, I would like to talk about Usain Bolt's actual registration application, mostly because I am regularly tickled by the sort of calculated ways that lawyers have to describe mundane things in yeah. these kinds of applications. I think <laughs> yeah. that's very funny. Yes. So I just wanted to read it. The application describes this pose as, quote, the silhouette of a man in a distinctive pose with one arm bent and pointing to the head and the other arm raised and pointing upward. Beautiful. Which, love that. little poetic there, too. Very lyrical. That's a really good one. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so... The pose we're talking about here, Bolt is trying to get trademark registration to have this in a lot of places on eyewear for bars and restaurants, just sort of a, a, a pretty broad application here. Technically, this application is not for trademark registration for the pose itself, but rather for this silhouette logo depicting the pose. Mm. That I'm bringing that up just to say that basically makes it a design mark. So yeah. it makes it not that different from any logo that a company wants to get a trademark registered for. Yeah. It's good to know that we don't have to pay every time we make that pose well, ourselves. I did want to point out <laughs> there is an option to get what's referred to as a motion trademark that describes the movement itself. So uh, the best example, um, our senior IP reporter, Tiffany, who wrote a story that I'm drawing from here. And the example she used was um, in 1996, Columbia Pictures got a registered trademark for a multimedia logo. It's the one where the woman holds the torch you see it at the beginning of a bunch of their movies. And it's the gesture of like holding that torch and it moves and whatever. So that yeah. is a motion trademark. So that is not what Usain Bolt's trying to get here. His is more like just a regular logo. But these cases, you know, when the, the stuff comes up can be challenging because you have to not just capture a specific like gesture that a famous person made. You also have to tie it to specific goods and services. It's not enough that you're just famous for making like a hand gesture or a pose that an athlete makes or whatever. The whole point of trademark law is to avoid brand confusion. So if yes. it's not attached to something that you're selling, you're not going to get a registered trademark for it. Okay. And yeah, I mean, this is, this was, and it's, it's funny and it's an important distinction that you're making with what gets trademark protection, because this was in the, this was in the 2008, this is in the Beijing Olympics, the hundred meters, he like blows away the field and he like sort of has his arms out. He points to his head, as you said. And like, I think like anybody who's like been on the internet since that time knows that clip, knows like kind of the pose, but the specific way you get protection for a pose like that, or as you say, Amber, the silhouette of a pose like that, it's it's got to be pegged to some kind of brand, some kind of um, sort of yeah, threat exactly. of confusion with some other thing. Yes, yes. 
Right. It's because it's all about will consumers be confused here? It has to be commercial. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Yeah. So that is like your little you guys just ate your spinach. That's your little lesson about IP law today. What I really wanted to do was just go through a list that Tiffany put together of some other times that famous people have tried to get similar trademark registrations. And I just thought that was fun. So I wanted to go through some of them. Uh, I assumed when I first read this story that the list would be comprised of all sports people, but in fact, wide variety here. So yeah. can't wait to just top five for you guys. Uh, the first one on the list is Gene Simmons of Kiss. In 2017, he tried to get a registration for the rock and roll horns, that hand gesture oh, that boy. he and many others used during live concert performances. And he wanted to get it registered for that use at live performances, but also in anytime a musical artist made an appearance, he wanted it registered to prevent others from using it in that context. <laughs> too. Oh my. I uh see Gene Simmons is a branding yeah. master, let's say. I mean oh, Kiss yeah. is like Kiss mostly is... known for oh, yeah. their look and logos, the face paint, the whole nine yards there. Well, and the he, licensing of their image. Yeah, like, I mean, they, they are like a, they are a paramount Lunchboxes of in the 70s, nothing but kids. Pinball machines, <laughs> apparel, like the whole thing. Like, yeah. Right. So um, Simmons said in the application back in 2017 that he had been using this gesture since at least 1974 and provided some evidence of that. But alas, he didn't end up abandoning this particular application. So musicians of the world, feel free to continue using the rock and roll horns. You're safe. Yeah. What I relief. thought that Beavis and Butthead had meant that, but uh, this <laughs> apparently Beavis in 1974, maybe. Right. I don't know, but it's not for me to say. Okay, next on my list is another musician, Jay-Z. In 2018, he tried to register the trademark for a hand gesture that Alex actually just did on our Zoom call. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Alex. Two hands, it's like the two rock hands is in the building. facing out <laughs> and the thumbs and index fingers touch. It's meant to essentially look like a diamond. Jay-Z did get registration for that, but there was notably a suit before he gained that registration where a pro wrestler named Diamond Dallas Page. I have no idea who that is, but I, somebody out there listening will know. It, Amber, I know. I, oh, great. I mean, Perfect. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this was a huge thing. I was a huge wrestling fan in the 90s. This is like a, this was a huge thing between the Rockefeller. What we're talking about is the Rockefeller logo with the diamonds yep. in the sky, if yep. you feel the vibe. And all this. Yeah, Diamond Dallas Page, like, did this. And there was huge litigation about that. There um, was. And that ultimately was settled. So yeah. Jay-Z is the trademark registrant at this point. I, I was about to speak off the cuff about who was doing it first. And I frankly don't quite know. And I shouldn't speak on it because it's settled. And I don't really know <laughs> who right. did it first. And that was the whole point of the dispute. Yes. <laughs> Um, so I'm going to lightning round a couple more of these just because yes, I please. think they're going to be really easy for people to grasp what they were. The next one on the list, Michael Jackson's state in 2016 sought to get registration for a trademark of his toe stand pose. Obviously, everyone knows what that is. It's like the move he makes right before he starts to moonwalk backwards yep. kind of thing. Um, the next one is Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee's estate also has had many, many trademarks, um, most of them related to various like flying kick poses, which are very, very Bruce Lee. So yep. that has also been in this sort of grouping. And then the last one I think is the most iconic of all. And in fact, I don't even think I need to say it aloud. Anyone listening to the segment that started thinking at all is like, oh, I know what one of these is. It's Michael Jordan. Um, it's got to be the most famous. It's the Jumpman 
Mark. It even has that great name. Oh, yeah. It's like perfect. Real Um, 90s kids know. Yeah. I mean, it's just so famous. Even non-sports people like me, I was like, yeah, of course I know what that is. I mean, uh, um, that's a sign it's fully penetrated. If Drake does a song about uh, about your brand, it's pretty ingrained in the culture. 90s kids know. 90s kids from the northwest suburbs of Chicago, like myself, definitely know. Yes. Well, given that list, you know, you can see that these are a range of like hand gestures, like physical full body poses. What would you guys want to register as your own personal trademark pose? I'm just very (laughs) interested in what defines your brand. Okay, mine is hunching over a laptop or smartphone screen scrolling through memes. Haley, I think we might end up... I'm just We're going to end up in court because my yeah. answer is also something where I am hunched in front of a computer because that's my life. Lot of potential brand confusion there. Uh, Absolutely. Haley. I mean, I'm a podcaster by trade. So like visual poses are not really, um, you know, sure. that doesn't really hue to like what I do. I don't know. I was, um, I don't know. I mean, I'd, it, I would probably be like, just like holding my kid. I don't know. Oh, you're being wow, that's dad so wholesome. now. That's cute. I don't know. I mean, well, that I mean, that's like at the front of my head. Like I'm that that's like my default pose, like a lot now. Like doing I like it. you know, uh, although I guess I mean, I don't know. Disney probably has something on the Simba uh, on, on the Rafiki holding Simba. Sure. Uh, uh, yes. Up thing. That's I I don't know that for a fact. I'm Haley. just speaking. It says something about us that Alex has such a sweet and wholesome answer, and we're like the crones crunched up in front of our computers over here. I know. Uh, it's not a great side. We really need to work on this. I think we all need to get out there this weekend, maybe do some things so that we can have more options. For do more poses. I can't. I mean, iconic pose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Practice in front of your mirror, guys. We got to come up with some better stuff. That seems like a pretty good place to end it today. Thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. I'm going to work on my poses. I'll be back next week. Great. And also, Haley. Thank you. I'll be uh, reflecting on what it means about how depressing my pose is. (laughs) (laughs) Me as well, guys. Me as well. I also want to thank a bunch of other people for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. Our guests this week, Amanda Ottaway. Our contributing reporters this week, Tim Ryan, Jeff Montgomery, Ben Zigerman, and Tiffany Hu. Music for our show comes from Silent Partner and Kelly Marcano. If you like Pro Se, leave us a written review wherever you're listening with five stars. That really helps other people find our show. And if you want to read more about anything we've discussed today, go to our website. That's law360.com slash podcast. Thanks and see you back here next week.